Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. I'm Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, and I'm here with Dave Hoffman, my colleague at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we really are talking about promises, promises, written promises, oral promises in Masterson versus Sign. Let's get started. So the students in our courses are likely to think of this case as being of a pair with Mitchell versus Lath. These are the sort of core parole evidence cases for, um, for situations in which one of the parties wants to introduce a new, what they're claiming is an additional consistent term into the deal. Correct. In Mitchell versus Lath, the court said, we aren't going to hear evidence of you of, as part of this sort of land transfer dispute, we aren't going to hear evidence that, um, that there was a side agreement for the removal of an ice house. In, as a part of a real estate sale. As a part of a real estate sale, that's right. As part of a transfer of land. And the court explained basically why under the parole evidence rule, they weren't going to allow what was basically credible evidence that the party had, the parties had in fact agreed to, to the removal of this ice house as part of the deal. And so Masterson versus Sign is sort of the counterpoint case. Right, do you want to say what's happening in this case? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yes. So one thing just to point out that Mitchell is, of course, they're paired in our, in, in our case book. Um, but they're really different in time and place. So Mitchell, yes. the 1928 Court of Appeals of New York case, um, in which, um, as you say, the evidence is not permitted under the parole evidence rule, Cardozo actually signs on to the majority opinion, doesn't write anything. And so um, we missed an opportunity to get some pretty great writing about the parole evidence rule and said we have some pretty pedestrian, not, not memorable writing. Um, Masterson, as you said, is a 1968 Supreme Court of California case that is, um, uh, that is by Justice Traynor at the height of Justice Traynor's um, what people think of as sort of his revolution in California contract law toward a, um, you could think of it as sort of realism, you could, sort of as a rejection of formalism, um, and certainly a contextual approach to contract interpretation. And so Ma Masterson, the, the sort of the underlying facts are that there is a conveyance of property, a ranch, um, by Dallas Masterson and his wife, Rebecca, to um, uh, the, the signs. Um, and there is in the convey, and that's in the 1950s. In the, in the conveyance itself, there is a kind of a, a, a reservation um, where they have a right before February 25th, 1968, the original sale is 1950. They have a 10-year right to repurchase at essentially the same price plus depreciation uh, value and the the signs are the sister, I think, um, of well, they're related. Um, Medora so sign is the 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 Mrs. Sign is Mr. Masterson's sister. He's so much better if one of them is called Cosine. Um, yeah, so that's that's that is exactly that is right. So there is this reservation of a right to repurchase um, the the ranch. You might have thought of um, well, anyway. The original sellers go bankrupt, and the trustee, which is to say the Mastersons, go bankrupt. The trustee of the bankrupt estate 
wants to exercise this option to repurchase, presumably because California real estate has gone up in value over the 10-year period of time since the original sale. And now if you're able to repurchase, you're able to make some money for the estate, satisfy creditors. And Masterson and Sign come forward and say, ah, here's the thing. It didn't say it in the agreement, but actually there was like, we had an understanding, maybe even an express understanding that the um, ability to repurchase was only to be held by the family, which isn't impossible to believe because it might be that they wanted to keep this ranch hold in the, the family. And so they say, you, the trustee of the bankruptcy estate are not in the family. You are not in the category of people who are able to exercise this option. And it's not here, written down. Sorry, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, no, sorry. And, and, and the, the way that I understand these facts is that the Mastersons are already in financial distress at the time of the original sale. Presumably so, so. What they're doing is probably still living on the property, is my guess. Yeah, it's sort of like a loan. They're getting a loan. That's, I exactly. Mean, you can think so of they, it as sort of like a very informal loan collateralized exactly. on the value of the property. They have conveyed the land in order to keep it, in order to keep it, basically. Yep. In order, yeah, okay. Um, and, and that's why they're conveying it to, to, to siblings, basically. Right, right. Um, but this is sort of a, this is like a financial restructuring it does not actually reflect sort of who's using and, and cultivating the land. We think, we think probably we, not. We think, we think not. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea was that what, what, when they, so what their claim is, is when we wrote the contract, um, this repurchase provision was meant to reflect the possibility, was meant to reflect the fact that the Mastersons are trying to get back on their feet. And as soon as they do, they get to, they get to have their land back. That's what, that's what their claim is, right? Yeah, kind of. And so the question in the case is whether this sort of personal reservation, this unwritten personal reservation can be testified to. I mean, really, the trial court didn't even let them try to prove it. They exclude the evidence at all. And we, that's, that's someone's dog, probably. That's probably. my dog. And it's He's, your dog. Yeah. Um, your dog really doesn't. I think your dog probably, like many people, have a very formal view of contract law and doesn't think that the idea that you could have an unwritten reservation and otherwise express fully a uh, sales contract makes any sense. But um, uh, I'm not supposed to take that position on this podcast. We're, uh, we're, supposed, to, we're supposed to take positions that are counter our actual views. Um, so so the, the trial court had excluded the evidence based on this thing called the parole evidence rule. And on appeal, the masters can say, look, we should have gotten to at least prove this to the fact finder. Not, it's not that it's a slam dunk, but rather the fact finder should have actually heard testimony yeah. that we had a personal reservation on the written, on the otherwise unex, unwritten, um, we had an unwritten personal reservation that was part of the, the, the reservation and the option. Can I, um, yeah, can I that's, I mean, that's, a, me, and that's the yeah. case. Yeah. yeah, sorry, that's it, it yes. Maybe a more basic fact that I think might that I that if I were that certainly tripped me up the first seven times I read it and maybe would trip students up. Yep. What this is a case in which the Masterson's rights, contractual rights, have been assigned to the trustee in bankruptcy. Is that is that, is that right? Or the trustee is in their the trustee stands in their shoes. Um, 
I am so worried now that we've actually tweeted about this podcast that we're going to have listeners that know things. I know, it's and a real concern. It's a concern. So um, I do think the trustee sits in the shoes of the, the yes. I think, I think that, let's just pretend like that's true. Okay, so this is the, at least conceptually, if not legally. Conceptually, that, conceptually. That, oh, right. that should be the name of this podcast, conceptually, <laughs> if not legally. <laughs> That would be like we'd be like common law people, you know. I mean, just thinking about it, just thinking about it. I think that the trustee stands in the shoes of the, I, of, of, yeah, of it, the bankrupt. Um, the let's just say the common law people get a lot more listeners on their podcast than we are ever going to get. Public just, law appears I, to actually change over time. But don't you have this weird worry that like our our wonderful colleague David Seal will be listening to this, and even yeah. though he's like an extremely gentle, like nice person, super embarrassed, and and yes. he would never tell us because he's so nice. That's the problem. He might. He might write a really really kind email. Next time, don't say "stand in the shoes." Of, <laughs> say something. Yeah. the The point that I want to make is that the the contract is presumably written as though the parties who are going to live with it, live in it, are the same parties who draft it. This makes sense because this is most of our contracts. This is a, because of the level of financial distress, it's actually not clear what the party, who the parties think is going to own their going to own their um, rights later on, right? But basically what you have is, is something like Hamer versus Sidway, where the people doing the enforcement are not the people who did the drafting, right? It's like having the executor of the estate come in and said, I read the language this way. And so here what you have is the trustee of the, of the bankrupt, is it called estate? Bankrupt estate? Of the bankrupt estate coming in and saying, perfect, I'd like to exercise this right now because I'm going to get this, I'm going to claw back this farm and then I'm going to sell it and pay off your debtors. And, and of course it's super, I mean, if the dissent's going to say it's super convenient for Masterson to say, no, no, this isn't part of my estate. It gets yeah. to stay with my in-laws. Exactly. Because then when they emerge from bankruptcy, maybe the in-laws give it back. Exactly. I mean, the, I mean, the idea, there, there's just a worry in the background yes. of the case that like the Mastersons and the signs have gotten together over drinks, presumably, you know, late at night at a, at a, at a, at a, at a dive bar. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm thinking, wrong case. I'm thinking about Lucy versus Emma, right? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so there they are. And they say, you know, it'd be really great if we could come up with some story that would get this out of bankruptcy because the bankrupt, the, the trustee is going to try to sell this land, which we've lived on for generations, selling you know, making sunflower seeds and uh, and raisins, and they're going to sell this land to our at the highest bidder and distribute it to our creditors, and then we're going to be left without a you know a, um, a ranch. And so, in the background of the case, there's a worry that this is really just fraud. This is a fraudulent transfer. And one thing I want to talk, put a pin in, as it were, for later, is the question about what we think. What do we think if? the parties didn't have any particular view. They actually weren't thinking it through when they drafted, drafted yeah. this contract. But if you had pressed them on it, they would have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm assuming this has to do with the transfer between me and my brother. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like what? Did, okay. okay. All right. So that's, that's our setup. So the setup yeah. is the, 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 there's an, there's an attempt by the Mastersons to prove what's really by the signs to prove that there was a personal reservation at which 
they assert is just an additional term right. on the written ability to exercise an option to repurchase. Exactly. So you can imagine them writing in, what they're saying is, it should say, after it says option, it should say subsection A, period, this option personal to the parties herein. Right. And the question, and, and so one question is, do we think that's really an additional term or do we think it's a bit of a contradictory term? And this gets into, the, I don't know the order that the listeners are going to be, are going to be up for this, but um, in interpretation cases like Nana Cooley, which is a case that I probably comes after this in the case book, um, but which we, we, we're done, we've done a recording on, there's always this question, you know, like, does the language that's being asserted contradict the thing that's in the agreement? Is it additional to? And you might have thought that those questions were like factual questions, but they're really not. I mean, sometimes, you know, yes and no, those are inconsistent with each other. Here, it's just a little bit of a harder call. You know, do you think that this, con this personal reservation contradicts an express right to repurchase land? I mean, it is a real clawback on that express right. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't formally contradict it. I think it's probably, it's probably fair to say it doesn't formally contradict it, but it, but it changes its meaning materially, if that's our question. So the trainer opinion here basically starts, basically just takes the, on its face, the, um, the, the argument that this is a collateral term, right? That this is not an interpretation, this is a collateral term. So just like in Mitchell versus Lath, they said, yes, the contract is for sale of property plus unwritten term that says we're going to knock down an ice house. Trainer says, okay, same setup. Here we have um, a, convey a option to purchase a home plus a unwritten term that says option is personal to the people in this contract. And, and he says, we need to think about whether the parties intended for the subject of negotiation to be included, excluded, or otherwise affected by the writing. Okay, great. In, so in Mitchell versus Lath, which, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and, um, cite them freely because for students they'll come they'll come right you know um seriatim in Mitchell versus Lath the court says how are we going to figure out of course it's the same thing we have to figure out if the parties intended for this to be part of their agreement right and the court says okay how are we going to figure it out we're going to figure it out by looking at the document and seeing if this looks like the kind of document that has other stuff outside of it and the court basically holds up a really thick sheaf of papers with a lot of words in it and says does this look incomplete to you don't be ridiculous. This is super long. People who wanted to have thing, things included put them in this long document. Is that your reading of Mitchell versus? And, and, and so, and just to be clear, yeah. I mean, so the idea is because you can look at the document and know or have a very strong prior that it should have included this other agreement, it would be, we'd be inviting all kinds of mischief to permit the parties to now testify about this other side agreement. What mischief? Well, the, the biggest mischief is the, the jury or the fact finder might believe them because juries are whimsical. They, or they don't have a sense of the big picture. 
they're not law-like. They, they're too swayed by the party sort of sympathetic tale. And so the jury would, like, we just are too worried about the type, the error of wrongly accepting a contract, wrongly believing that there was a contract when there wasn't. And as our, um, as our prior, that the original contract was complete, gets, um, gets stronger, we should be less likely to accept the risk that the jury um, um, misperceives or mislistens to the plaintiff where they say, look, there's a, side, there's a side deal. And so the parole evidence rule in this way kind of functions as a, as a, a gatekeeper to avoid mistaken jury understandings of collateral agreement. That's one purpose of the parole evidence rule, and that's really present in Mitchell versus Black. Yes. And you know that Justice Trainer, Chief Justice Trainer, is going to go a different direction because of how he starts his paragraphs, frankly. So mm-hmm. the meat of the so the meat of the opinion actually is toward is on 781 to 782. Is that your view? Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. And he says to start his um, to start start his the conclusion out. He says evidence of oral collateral agreements should be excluded only when the fact finder is likely to be misled. Well, that's already something different for us. In Mitchell versus Lath, I think the court was pretty sure that those people had a deal for a nice house. Like, I think they, that, that's at least how I always see it, that it was, they had pretty credible evidence in front of them. And the, so they didn't feel like they were going to be misled. Instead, what they felt like, they felt like was, you guys have to follow the rules, if I may. Here we have trainers saying, nope, you only exclude it when the fact finder is likely to be misled. And then he starts to um, basically cite formulations of the parole evidence rule, which is a really, may I say, oft articulated, never repeated rule. Everyone has their own description of it, and none of them actually are the same. Um, and so he, if I sort of cherry picks um, articulations of the rule that sound very pro-parole evidence. Um, If the additional terms are such that if agreed upon, they would certainly have been included in the document in the view of the court, then evidence of their alleged making must be kept from the trier of fact. Certainly italicized by the Chief Justice himself is, is, is quite a, a high standard. Right? It says only if you're certainly, only if this is so bad that you're definitely going to get, um, only if this is so um, obviously should have been included that you're obviously going to be misled, do you exclude the evidence? Yeah. So if you want to put, so that, I mean, I agree with you. So he basically picks the version of the parole evidence rule in which credibility is the key thing that the parole evidence rule is doing and says, well, really, should we, the judges, be the ones who make that choice only in the most extraordinary case? Ordinarily, we should let it be for the jury to decide. And so what would the extraordinary case look like if there's lots of indicia in the document? that they really didn't intend for there to be any other agreement. Well, maybe in those cases, it's kind of hard to believe. But even then, we might ask ourselves, like, well, did anyone read the document? Um, and this is going to be River Island, the case that sort of follows in the casebook, which is, you know, even if the document on its own, on its face, appears to preclude the, um, the offer of proof, maybe we don't listen to the document. And so, and so for Trainer, he's like, look, you know, if the goal is credibility, it's pretty hard to see a lot strong examples, a priori, where the, the judges should be making that choice. And so, you know, what I've tested on in this a couple of times is in, you know, a jurisdiction that follows this kind of 
this kind of role, would it matter if the conversation was recorded or not? And so, and of course it would matter, right? So like for, for a trainer, the better, the more credible that other evidence is, the more indicia we have that the thing really happened, the less we should worry about the original document's completeness on its face. Now, th this opinion comes out of a, a sort of a long debate in contract law between, you know, sort of formalism and contextualism. And the opinion um, is a triumph for contextualism and a triumph for Corbin in particular. So Corbin is cited in the footnote here. The opinion definitely advances Corbin's sort of view about how the world ought to work. Um, and, you know, for a long time, I kind of asked, I, I, I kind of avoided conversations about sort of legal theory like this in class because who cares, you know, in some ways. Um, but you should know that the, the, it's not like trainer's opinion kind of comes out of his skull like Athena. You know, this is, has roots in contract or deep roots, the opinion does. And, you know, the dissent, which is sort of flabbergasted, um, how could you possibly have done this radical thing? It might help students to know it's not that radical. I mean, it is a, like a long rooted tradition in contract law to be contextual, that's all. And in, in part, it's not that radical because it, the parole evidence rule itself is a kind of a arguably a shaky. Yeah, yeah that's the, that would be the argument. Yes, that it, like what's you might just say, listen, you don't need the parole evidence rule putting a thumb on the scale. Just ask if the evidence is credible or not. We allow all kinds of oral agreements to be enforced in contracts. And so, right. So, I mean, the pro the yeah. relevance rule has this sort of intuition that writings are more true than non-writings. That that like if, if it was written down, it's more likely to really represent what the parties are about. And it, I, I mean, it very obviously has its sort of intellectual understandings in a culture where writing was pretty rare, and you did it, and it was expensive to do because you had to sort of fuss a lot, and and there therefore was a big difference between written products and non-written products yeah. that like, you know, whenever you were going to get serious, you know, you and your, your, your gentleman counterparty, were going to get serious at the coffee shop or wherever it was you did the insurance of London, you know, Lloyd's of London. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to insure the ship. You wrote it down on like the vellum with your quill. And I mean, I think that's where this, there's an intuition here that like writing is, a signal of seriousness and credibility and reality and oral promises are things that are not the same. And one of the problems with the parole evidence rule today is that we live in a society which is like everything is written down, but fewer things are formally negotiated. And so, you know, now we're going to have, you know, text messages, which are going to be evidence of agreements so they're written, but they don't have the same um, cautionary um, indicia that a, a document which both parties sort of looked at at the same time and understood to be a contract. And so the parole evidence rule gatekeeps on the wrong, on the on the wrong thing these days. It it's decided that the writing is the thing because that's what used to be the 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 marker, uh, and it was a good marker maybe back in the day. Sorry, you want to jump back in? No, yeah. The, 
Okay, so what's let's just talk about what's about what's for a second about what's tough about this case. I'm gonna and I'm gonna read it about what, what about what's the, the the sort of crux here, right? The yeah. Although you're also aren't you supposed to take the position I'm that taking, the case is yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yes, yeah, good, yes, good, no, good. Okay, great. We, have we did decided, we did some really good we did good prep did, this time. Yes, we, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I am usually basically just want the parties to, I just want everyone to be happy. Yeah. 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 And half loaf, half loaf solutions. <laughs> and I don't have maybe sympathies for the trustees. And I feel as, well, anyway, would normally feel sad, but I'm not going to feel sad for people in this case. What I'm going to suggest is that this case is tough because it's actually the exact situation that the parole evidence is made to, um, to prevent. So the, the, what, what just, what justice trainer says is, um, what we should do is ask if on the whole, these parties, these, this, these kinds of parties making this kind of deal would necessarily put this term into the writing. We shouldn't just look at the writing and ask if it looks complete. We should say, would these people really have known that they had to write it all down? And he says, there is nothing in the record to indicate that the parties to this family transaction through experience in land transactions or otherwise had any warnings of the disadvantages of failing to put the whole agreement in the deed. This case is one, therefore, in which it can be said that a collateral agreement such, that the, such as that alleged might naturally be made as a separate agreement. I don't know how to pronounce F-O-R-T-I-O-R-I. Fortiori. Fortiori, great, mm -hmm. hard T. Um, Actually, I, really, I have no idea. That was like such a classic moment. I really have no idea how to pronounce that, but I'm going to guess that that's the answer. Okay, great. I think I've been pronouncing it with a, like, like it's fortiori. Okay. That's probably even more right. Mm. One um, of the great things about, about, of course, being a Socratic teacher is, is, is no, no, one, no one will really ever know. Sometimes you get like um, students who were like classics undergrads. Oh, those people. I had a brilliant student who probably is even going to end up listening to this who taught Latin at uh, St. Yeah. Joe's Prep. Yeah. That guy definitely corrected me once or twice. So it's, it's lovely. I also like if I have someone from the location who can tell me how to pronounce the names correctly. Um, okay. Uh, uh, Fortiori. That doesn't sound right. Um, why, don't you just, why don't you just mumble a little bit? I, I am. I'm mumbling the best I can. The case is not one in which the parties would certainly have included the collateral agreement in the deed. So. He's a sly fox. Dave, you're supposed to be arguing the other side. No, no, I'm sorry. Yes, it sounds really good. Yes, it sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. I'm, I'm a, I'm, was a game represents game. No, no, no. Game likes game. Go, recognizes game. I, I recognize mm -hmm. what he's up to here. Yeah, I can see this. Yes, I think we're going to get a lot of congratulations for our real um, understanding of modern uh, vernacular. Okay. So we are going to get, yeah. When you just said that, yes. If Jasper heard this, he'd be so embarrassed. I, I mean, I think I'm embarrassed. That's fine. I, <laughs> I, I am, I am appreciating this, the skill of this person's writing, but I'm also trying to translate that into what the kids would understand would be the, the vernacular of the day. I believe the kids use the word vernacular. <laughs> so, so what, um, trainer says here is 
look, I wouldn't necessarily think if all, if you take the sort of gestalt of the situation, gestalt meaning the whole, the whole being bigger than some of its parts. If I used gestalt in class about five years ago and one of my students raised his hand and said, I mean, obviously I know what gestalt means, but I don't think Kim does. <laughs> I mean, they were, yeah. Um, but so if you take the overall um, picture, he says that you should, you should take seriously that they might not have included this, um, this term. Yep. And I guess that's a pretty, I find that to be a pretty tough argument or, or I, I'm going to take the position that I find that to be a tough argument because I, call me crazy, but that was actually the main thing they cared about. Yeah. Like they are in this deal. This is not a situation in which they want to, they want someone to knock down an unsightly ice house across the road. They're literally in this deal to preserve their own right to their family farm. In, in a circumstance where they were financially distressed. In a circumstance where they're financially distressed. Now, I don't know about you. Your debating tactics are, by the way, not excellent. You are on the other side of this argument. And you keep chiming in. With I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying to help you get into the method acting of the thing. The... Like the being tactics are not excellent. I was like fourth place in the regional competition in high school debate. Okay, maybe it's not tactics. Maybe it's more like following the rules. You're on the other side. You got assigned oh. a side, and you're on the other side. Oh. You don't get to choose which side you're on in debating. If I understand correctly. If you understand correctly, there's no chance you weren't the champion of upstate Maine. Let's be honest. A A, it's no upstate Maine. It's just down east. B didn't have a debating team in my high school. C I'm from southern Maine. Wow. Not the county. Yeah. I, I think that the, the, the real debater move is to have a D there, but yes. <laughs> Go on. The, so the, I find this tough on both sides, right? It's both tough. <laughs> the dogs don't chime in. I find it's tough on both sides. On the one side, it seems like, is it really <gasps> true that these parties in financial distress, whose only goal is to preserve their rights to repurchase the farm? Don't write down the most important term if they're otherwise constraining, you know, um, uh, limiting themselves to a writing, A. And B, if you care about the other side, about the credibility of the evidence on the other side, which, which for sure Justice Trainer does, as you can tell in, his, in the footnote to Corbin, right? He says, if the court believes that the parties intended a collateral agreement to be effective, there's no reason to keep the evidence from the jury. The, what, why would the court believe these parties, right? The Mastersons and the signs are on the same side here. And this is, this is the Burke dissent. This is the Burke right? dissent, exactly. The Burke dissent basically says, you know, this is, you know, this is a spur to flimflammery and fraud. Yes. And although it feels good in the moment, like the, you know, the ice cream many of us are having at the end of the day, just to get through things in the beginning of the day. Um, uh, It's going to lessen your ability to rely upon contracts because you're always going to have the possibility of fraud. You know, someone's going to be able to say this thing and attack the agreement collaterally. And, you know, Burke basically says the result of this should be that, that real estate prices go down in California. That, which is kind of like a, an interesting empirical thing to try to test. 
um, I think people are going to start. There's actually a great new database of um, uh, real estate uh, sales um, that comes from Redfin, uh, and I, I believe. And I've been trying to convince our colleague John Click to um, try to use those real estate sales as DV, as dependent variables, to sort of look about how contract law predictions turn out to be you know, either true or false. What Burke basically says is because of the uncertainty this decision adds to real estate transactions, we're going to destroy the real estate market. Now, you know, California at the time this case comes out is, is on the verge of like a pretty unprecedented 30 year explosion in growth and economy. And so it might be hard to separate out that secular, unbelievably amazing trend for California from the marginal effect of the changing parole evidence rule that the trainer's up to here. Um, and, you know, lawyers, law students, judges probably ought to be pretty humble about like the effect of common law rules on anything because they're, you know, messy, hard to figure out. You need to really be, have a law degree to kind of understand why this thing matters. But that's the, what you're articulating is basically like, this is exactly the heartland of what parole evidence is. If it's supposed to do anything, it's supposed to prevent side fraudsters from collaterally attacking pretty well-articulated commercial real estate sales about a ranch. I mean, ranches are big. That's, they sprawl. So if you, if you thought it was about anything, it was about this. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's quite possible, and sometimes does happen, that students are pretty angry about this opinion. But I'm supposed to defend it, right? Well, here, let me... Let I, me... I, I, have, I have things to say about defending it. I do. Okay, I do. great. Because I think... One thing... So... One thing that does seem vulnerable here to me in my argument that I've just made, <laughs> this does make it clear to me that I'm always telegraphing to students what my view of the actual, my actual view of every case is. They're never going to be like, what does she really think? But <laughs> the, the concern is that the claim that, is that the ex post claim is, is basically fraud, right? That there's like a fraudulent transfer. But, yeah. but, but what was really, but what's the sort of best case for the Mastersons about what was going on at the time of, of, of drafting? That they didn't use lawyers and, or they didn't use good lawyers. And, you know, there was an implicit understanding or maybe even an explicit one. And they just, look, one thing about people in financial distress is they make all kinds of, you know, resource constrained choices about how to spend their money. And one of them might be they didn't buy the better lawyer or maybe they didn't even buy a lawyer. And it was like, if you would, I, I don't think it's crazy at all. And let me defend the opinion. If you were going to have this financial engineering where you're basically getting a loan collateralized on the property you get to sit on and you're doing it with your sister, it is very understandable to imagine that everyone believed that the only people who could exercise it was you personally. And that's not because you thought that you were going bankrupt, but rather because it was all about the land and your connection to it, your personal connection to it. It is extremely um, um, understandable to put yourself in the position of these people in 1958 
like the world's different in 1958, right? So like it's more California's more rural. There's it's more agrarian. They have a family homestead, a ranch that has been there for a long time, and they didn't use the right words. I mean, in in the written document and the. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I mean, for me, the biggest defense of the case is sort of like a, I, I worry about what Burke says. I really do. I worry about the possibility of fraud. But, you know, for me, the case is about who decides. And at some level, the parole evidence rule was an outgrowth of sort of an elitist approach to law, which says that only judges can are able to think about predictability. So, you know, the other side of this credibility argument is forget about credibility. Let's just be predictable. Right. Let's be predictable. Let's make sure that written documents have some value, not because they're more credible, not because we're really trying to make sure that the, that the result is that the answer is right, but rather because we just want contract litigation to be cheaper than dumb tort litigation. And the one way in which it's cheaper is that, like, the answers are all there on the page. And all we have to do is sort of, like, look at the page and figure out, and, and the result is, you know, the average case for a contract lawsuit should be lower and people should be, will be spurred to enter their contracts. They know what they're going to get. That's the, that's the argument. And it makes some sense. And as a result of that argument, you might say, well, judges should be the ones who gatekeep. But for me, like, that's just a little bit like, we just don't trust juries to be able to hear arguments about predictability. We don't trust juries to be able to hear arguments about the systemic consequences of the decisions that they make. And Masterson at some level is sort of like, look, in a legal system in which it has to be at the end of the day based on sort of democratic accountability. If you can't sell it to the people, then you can't get it. You can't have it as a product. And Masterson sort of says, go make the arguments you want to make about fraud to the jury. Go tell the jury that if you don't rule for us, uh, and this is sort of talking to the bankrupt trustee, if you don't rule for us, we don't get to have good, nice things. Um, And, uh, you know, Masterson says, look, either they're going to believe it or they're going to not. Are they going to accept it or they're not? And if they don't accept it, then maybe they don't want that. Maybe, you know, maybe we get to live, we would have to live with a little bit less certain system. In the, and, and, and that, I mean, at, at some level, Masterson's like a profoundly democratic case. Small d, democratic. Small a, accountable. I'm not sure why small a, accountable. It's an accountable democratic case. And it comes from a tradition in which the law should be less formal, less elite, less inaccessible. Um, and that's the way for me, that's the way I feel comfortable with the case. If I, if I am forced to defend the case, I would say, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a Jeffersonian understanding oh, of wow. the law. Yeah, no, go ahead, Hamilton. I feel very compelled by that. Sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> that is um, my daughter FaceTiming me from vacation with her grandparents. I don't know how to mute it though, obviously. Mm, Do not disturb. Okay. My question is, or one interesting question maybe for us is maybe we miss out, maybe what the case does is it, is it tease up the, sorry, back up. But maybe that one of the problems with this case is that it, it, it frames for us the wrong set of questions. The question is, ne- the, what we end up arguing about is, did these parties have an explicit collateral, dis- collateral um, deal 
that it was that the that the transfer was going that's that's sorry the option was going to be personal to the parties, and like I take it that we basically believe that there's no way that they, that was their explicit collateral deal. Explicit. explicit. That we did not say right that no. okay. We might believe that they interpreted the term. Yeah. To mean this is just us. I wonder if part of their part of the 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 way that this went sideways for these parties is actually they over-formalized the deal, right? Like they shouldn't have if actually- they had, no, If they had said less, they'd be in better shape. They should have not put the option in there, right? right? So there's some, in a family transaction, they would have been yeah. better off trusting, Yep. right? Nope. And then, yep. a, and, then a, and then a trustee who comes in can't exercise the option. No, right, it's like they're half-baked. It's, they're it's, half-baked it's, on law, it's a Yeah, and I mean, so I guess, it makes me want, it makes me suspect that they probably had some sort of bad lawyering. That's my guess. That unless there, unless the, unless this is a common, unless the option here is a common device. You know, or or they have like a lay understanding of what lawyering is. They you know they looked on whatever 1968's version of Google was the library, I guess, um, <laughs> and you know they pulled this they pastiched it up a little bit, yeah. you know, and, you know, so either they have a terrible lawyer or they're their own lawyer, which is a differently bad thing. Um, I agree with you. Like if they had, if they had less law, they would have been better. If they had more law, they'd be better. They're kind of betwixt and between. Right. And the result is that they are then subject to this devastating Burke critique that they're fraudsters. Well, as their argument is we're rubes. Yeah. Um, and or we, this, we always meant this. That's, right. that's the best argument for them, right? Is we all, wait, wait, what? Right. We thought we were putting this clause in to protect ourselves in the event, for example, that the, that the signs had to sell or something. Right? I mean, one of the in- interesting things about the case is that like at, at both the particular and at the high level, it's, the arguments are very easily perceived. You know, at the particular level, you can see how either they're sympathetic, we always understood this, or they're fraudsters. And at the high level, you can understand either contract law should be trying to get it right or should be trying to get it predictable. And, um, and so, you know, it's a nicely pa- internally paired case where your intuitions work. I mean, the, the, the arguments are like very easy to push on both, uh, on both the, the, yeah. the, for the case and for the dy- dynamism. And, and like the great thing, I mean, as I said earlier, like, I think there's just no way to empirically test. Like, although there's lots of empirical arguments in the case about like what this is going to do, my my guess is you can't really test those empirical arguments. Is this going to be good or bad for real estate prices? Is this going to increase or not increase the number of contracts? And what you're left with is kind of um, um, uh, iterated arguments that don't really end up going anywhere they don't end up cashing out in, in certain outcomes. And so, you know, students can have very strong intuitions about the case and not be wrong. So it's a, it's a great teaching case in that way. You look troubled. The students can't see, but you're, you're troubled. You're holding up, got, you're holding up, you're angry, you're angry, you're the, whatever the, the gritted teeth emoji is. The wince emoji. Yeah. Um, what's, the win, what's the wince emoji about? <laughs> I just worry about what happens to about what I I do not like teaching and reading the cases that pur- purport to be about one thing but are about another thing. 
And that is one, that is the reason that I find this case tough is it feels disingenuous. <laughs> now, now you have the gritted teeth case. I would rather the courts, if they say we're going to do whatever. Democratic, so, Democratic Jeffersonian. Democratic Jeffersonian. Theory. Yeah. Theory, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sort of prefer that they say that. And the parole evidence rule is, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. The parole evidence rule to me feels like, they're ba- like a bad fit here. Because I just don't really buy that the parties would make the claim that, that, that we have in this case. I don't buy that that's their, really their best claim in terms of humans saying real things about, the, about their situation. And so it's hard to say, like, you know, so, so Trainer says, it is contended, however, that an option agreement is ordinarily presumed to be assignable if it contains no provisions forbidding its transfer or indicating that its performance involves elements personal to the parties. The fact that there is a written memorandum, however, does not necessarily preclude parole evidence rebutting a term that the law would otherwise presume. I mean, and, like he's dealing I, with this contradiction problem. Anyway. No, and I think that like the parole evidence rule is hard. It is, it is as, I mean, our whole course is hard. Unlike, you know, the torts podcast, which basically is like, he shouldn't have hit him or the common law podcast, which is like freedom, you know, (laughs) rights are things hard because, you know, parole evidence in particular is like a really lawyer's doctrine. You know, you think you have a promise, but you're not going to get to testify about it. We're not saying it didn't happen. You just don't get to testify that it happened because it wasn't written down at the right time in front of the right in front of the right people. I mean, and oh, go ahead. I just I guess that the most truthful part of the opinion to me is the second to last sentence. In the present case, defendants offered evidence that the parties agreed that the option was not assignable in order to keep the property in the Masterson family. That's the thing that Trainer finds compelling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What he finds compelling is that. That seems likely. To him. To him. Likely enough yeah. to allow someone else to decide whether it's true. People might want to keep property in the family. That seems like a big deal. But of course, if that's what you find credible, then the parole evidence rule is neither here nor there. The whole point of the parole evidence rule is to so- at least sometimes exclude credible evidence on the view that if the parties really meant it, they would have written it down. It's then that and the theory that it seems more credible to you than it should. Well, I mean, so the, the thing that's hard about the case is why doesn't he just say the parole evidence rules don't? <laughs> We're not doing it anymore. And, and I mean, that is one way people read this case is that they're like, what trainers really saying is there's no parole evidence rule in California, which is certainly what they say about PG&E. Well, sure. um, um, and that the, and what he's saying is it all comes in. And he's not saying that, right? The rule is is not that it all comes in. It only comes in when it's sufficiently credible, according to him, to allow someone else to decide whether it's true. And, you know, I, I would find it easier to live in a world where we didn't have a parole evidence rule. I mean, I can I can see that as a as a default that like the parties can always try to add terms and. You know, my guess is that lay juries are pretty unsympathetic to oral agreements that are not included in well-specified written contracts. I think if you think about like how lay psychology of, of decision-making makes, it's, it would be pretty obvious for the jury to say, look, I mean, the counterfactual 
there it was your opportunity to write whatever you wanted and you didn't take it. And why should we believe you now when you've got all the incentive in the world to lie? Yeah, but the concern there is going to be that the lay jury has that has that up against its its sort of baseline preferences for fairness. That but, the, but their baseline preferences are for formalism. I think that their preferences about contract law are put it in writing or it doesn't exist. I have a feeling that when you get the trustee involved, intuitions shift. Oh, I have a paper about this very topic. Tell us. <laughs> one of the so normally we you and i talk about how ordinary morality is sort of imported wholesale into contracts intuition that people sort of think like look contracts are promises you wrote it down you signed it you're stuck right i did at one point in my career go down a sort of a little bit of a rabbit hole of a, with the idea of assign, assignment of contracts because assignment is really weird and it does not come up in ordinary promising. It is not the case that I can promise my kid that we are going to go to get ice cream later and then have my other kid claim to have purchased the right for that trip. That's a really weird example that I can't, but that, but it's so the, weird. So well, weird. Yeah. My kids are very transactional, but the, you, but you, but you get the idea, right? That it's, Typically, promissory morality, interpersonally, is, is personal. It matters. You're, what you owe has to do with certain kinds of reciprocity norms and sort of respect or something like that. And once you get an intervener, like a trustee or an assignee, assignee? Do you I'm, I'm not going to comment on pronunciation. Oh, um, I actually think a lot of that stuff falls away. And so I... I mean, I don't, I don't just think that. I actually, I actually sort of tested it once, and that it, there was some suggestion that people just respond less moralistically and mm, positively to people who have been assigned rights as compared to people who have purchased the rights themselves. So I really like that paper, although I'm not sure it really tells us anything about this particular scenario. So, of course, what it suggests is that like people may be more likely to um, to breach contracts with your assigned party than you would with the original party. You're more likely to walk away from your mortgage, for example, when the bank owns the mortgage, than when the, when the transfer bank owns the mortgage, than when the original bank owns the mortgage. The question here is, do we think that people have a different view about like whether all of your promises that are real promises are right in writing, which is something else that they think, right? We have this, we have evidence in our work, in yeah. our work together, that basically folks think the promises that count are the promises that are written down. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I do think there's cross-cutting intuitions here, but my guess is that that intuition, the, the, right, the written promises are the real ones, trumps the intuition that when you have a counterparty who's not your original contracting, it just means less. Now, we could test this. You know, but, I'm just, if, but, there's, but there's three cross-cutting intuitions. All, what I'm suggesting is wow. that the, yeah, that's right. That's well, a lot of cross-cutting. Like lasers, like in like Mission Impossible. Oh, I was thinking like a laser printer. What comes out of it? Tell me the answer. <laughs> Nothing, because who can keep toner in their home? Oh, that is printing so true. in the pandemic is just kill is killer. Oh, but, yeah. But no, but so the I but the point I'm making is actually more that
this might weaken. So it, my guess at a baseline is that, the, is that the bankruptcy trustee is less sympathetic to a jury, less appealing than the farmers and the owners of the ranch. So, so I'm talking about a baseline intuition in which like, yeah, if you get to just like, if you get to be the sort of redistribution czar, yep. the person who gets the money is the Masterson's. Not yeah. the not the bank. That's who that's who trustees are. Banks, right? Yeah. Okay. So that so you have that sort of moral intuition weighing on the one side, and then you have these contracts intuitions on the other. All I'm, yeah. what I'm suggesting is that the assignment may weaken some of the contracts intuitions. That's all. I, I agree. So I agree. I, I mean, I agree. Of course, that has to be true. I do think that one of the things that's wild in the opinion is how much sort of folk theory is in the opinion. You know, all of these things about what people would do, how they would react to yes. legal rules. Yes. Yes. What, what do people know about yes. this? The, the background California rules of assignment. No. The, I mean, this, I mean, sometimes legal decisions, legal opinions have sort of a theory about how people are gonna to react to them that's sort of relatively sensible contract, you know, in tort law, we should have punitive damages because it's going to deter. Now, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe it won't deter, but at least it like, it's parsable. You can see how if you punish people, you're going to do less of the thing here. It's like an extremely complicated theory of how people, when they draft contracts are going to know about the California law on assignment, which (laughs) by the way, like, I'm not even sure we're pronouncing the right way. And (laughs) as a result of them knowing about the California law about assignment, they are or are not are going to put in this written document some words and juries are or are not going to be a react to the missingness of those words. Yeah. Like it's really a theory of other people. That's like a a very um, aspirational. Yes. You're no, and you're gaming out if they think this and they think this, then they'll come out here in a way that's just like you had so many degrees of freedom. And so the odds of, of error are super high. And now, and, 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 and in a sense, like, and by the way, as a result of this opinion, here's my next set of predictions about the world. Like, (laughs) I mean, there's a real um, aspirational superstructure. Like this opinion really feels like a Socratic classroom. You know, everyone's got a theory about what's going to happen or what did happen. And everyone has like a set of projections, which because they're so well written, they're so rational. When you read them, you're like, yeah, I guess that's maybe, uh, you know, and and there's a bit of a lawyer's art to it. You know, you use the right formulation of the words to make it make sense. But at the end of the day, like my view about this whole thing, like the gestalt of the thing is like, who decides? who gets to make decisions about contract law and who doesn't and you know, and at what level, at what moment in the case do those decisions get made? Do you kick it on a motion to dismiss or do you have a jury trial? Does the judge do it or does the jury do it? And I, right. And so I find that to be super extremely compelling. I find myself basically at at two sides of an extreme, neither of which includes this outcome here. My view is basically either if you, if your view is right, then no poor, then just no rule. Right. Then the sensible thing is just to say this rule is out. Or if we're going to have the rule, then you got to just stick with the Mitchell versus Lath system and be like, well, this is a long contract. This seems like you probably wrote, wrote a lot of stuff down. Right. Write it down next time, friends. It, it does seem that the particular thing that the case settles on does not feel like a super stable 
equilibrium. Yeah. Uh, although, like you know, it's. I mean, maybe it is. If that's the. Yeah. Um, that that there is. Yeah. If I was a law student trying to say like, how do I apply this to a an exam fact pattern, I you know I would find it I would find it difficult to say anything other than well, the more credible the evidence is, the more likely it should be to pass the the test and be admitted. But credibility feels like an extremely um, circular. Uh, un- Uncaused cause. Yeah, I was I mean, right, exactly. Oh, uncaused like, cause. I don't know what that means, but but I like it. it sounds circular, right? It I mean, does, it does circular. Maybe that's the, what I meant to the say. Credibility seems like it bears on both what you envision people would do and then the strength of the sort of conf- of the evidence. Yeah. Which is two kinds right. of like so it's interesting, sort of it's very Bayesian. Very Bayesian. Yeah. Totally. Um, oh, I wish our I wish our base Bayesian friends are going to listen to this. They'll be super highly excited. No, it's not that unlikely. We're going to be pushing it on Twitter. Everyone's going to be listening to it. It's going to be amazing. Uh, yeah, that might get people to click open, but once they get past the yeah, um, we're going to be like a Netflix movie. I heard everyone listens watches like two minutes of a Netflix movie, but never finishes them. <laughs> but it, it, right now we're like forty minutes into the show. So if yeah. you are listening to this, you are what we call a completer, and we value your your time. <laughs> Okay. All right. I don't think we did a good job taking the wrong opinions. Well, maybe no. we did. Actually, I kind of came around to believing this case is wrong. And I, you I know what, and, and, you, and I also feel, um, I feel like it's, it's actually made me feel worse about PG&E, which I, it's a feeling I don't like, so I have to, have to rethink about that. No, yeah, just do, yeah, it's okay. By the time we're done with this, you'll remember the conversation anyway. It's great. <laughs> um, all right, great. See you next time. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Yep. <laughs>